Chapter One of House, Garden, and Field. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. House, Garden, and Field A Collection of Short Nature Studies by L. C. Meal. Chapter One Introduction. I have received a good deal of advice from teachers and others as to the kind of book on nature study that is really wanted, and I will begin by explaining how it is that I have found it undesirable to attempt exactly what my friends expect. They expect, it would seem, ready-made lessons on a variety of interesting and easy topics. The teacher, they tell me, has neither the time nor the knowledge to prepare lessons of his own. Since lessons on nature study are demanded, they must be drawn up for him and put into his hands complete. It is quite true, I sorrowfully admit, that many teachers have no time for study. That is almost the same thing as admitting that they have not time to teach well, for it is only those who are always increasing their own knowledge who can hope to become inspiring teachers. Knowledge, to be stimulating, must be kept alive by personal effort. It cannot be acquired once for all. This is true, I believe, of all teaching, but it is especially true of nature study. For the primary aim of nature study is to set up the habit of observation and to keep alive that love of nature which shows itself in most unspoilt human beings. If the teacher does all the observation himself, his pupils are defrauded of their fair share, though they may possibly catch something from him of the spirit of inquiry. But if the teacher, too, gets all his knowledge without effort, then the so-called nature study which he dispenses has no more power to excite the love of nature or the spirit of inquiry than a printed list of the kings of England with dates. These considerations lead me to believe that it will be a greater service to start, if I can, the habit of observation and inquiry in some few teachers than to furnish a great many ready-made lessons. I do not, however, think it superfluous or mischievous to print from time to time examples of ready-made lessons. The most independent of teachers can profit by seeing how another man goes to work, and he will, it is to be hoped, be as solicitous to note faults which he is to avoid as merits which he is to imitate. Of course, the facilities thus afforded will be abused by some. There are persons in all professions whom no pressure of circumstances would induce to think for themselves. But a teacher of any spirit will at least throw the information and the hints which he gets from another into a form of his own and will carry on many inquiries which cannot be expected to issue in school lessons. The belief is prevalent that the training of teachers in nature study means supplying them with a number of lessons which can be directly reproduced in the schoolroom. Several objections to this time-saving method force themselves upon the attention. The teachers are put into a servile attitude. They are made into vehicles for transmitting, no doubt with much dilution and some loss of accuracy, lessons which another person has drawn up. The lessons as given to the teachers are not real lessons, nor are the teachers really trained for the laying up in a notebook of materials for future lessons does not deserve the name of training. A printed book would answer the purpose in view better than any lecture. The book is both more extensive and more accurate than old lecture notes. I have understood my duties differently, and address a class of teachers in training as persons whose powers are to be cultivated. Such tasks are assigned to them as they are fit for. The explanations and questions are adapted to their present knowledge and capacity. To offer them a lesson suitable for a class of children would be impossible, and even if it were possible, would give a wrong notion of what the lesson should aim at. A lesson at its best is an inquiry, worked out between the teacher and his class. 
train the teachers to observe, to reflect, to express their meaning in clear language, and to arrange the matter of their lessons in a good order, but leave them entirely free to choose their own subjects, and to handle them in their own way. Though the teacher, even if fortunate, cannot expect to be able to devote a large part of his time to study, the hours that he can now and then spend in study will be of great use, both to him and to his pupils. If he is only able to get up with due thoroughness a single new lesson a year, that lesson will influence all the rest. I have heard of a schoolmaster who had mastered by his own efforts the movements and phases of the moon, and taught that one thing heartily and well. No mean result, I thought, but I should have been glad to hear that he was adding a fresh topic to his stock every year, less than that would not fix him in the right attitude. Whether the living things that share our dwellings or seek their food in our gardens and fields make the best possible matter for school lessons or not, the student of nature is bound to attend to them. They are what the mother tongue is to the student of languages, what the fatherland is to the student of history. A man who knows nothing about the flowers of his own window boxes and his own flower beds, nothing about the plants which raise food for him, or the insects which devour what he had hoped to enjoy, nothing about the minute forms of life which bring fertility to the soil, or fatal disease to the household, nothing about houseflies and hive bees and bacteria, such a one may call himself a naturalist, may indeed have a right to the name, but he has need of deep knowledge of some other kind to escape the accusation of blindness and indifference. What opportunities of enlarging his knowledge of life has he allowed to escape him? A good method of nature study should exhibit some of the following features. 1. It should bring out the most remarkable properties of the object studied. How serious an oversight it is to lecture on a plant or an animal, and somehow to ignore the fact that it is alive. Development, growth, and adaptation to surroundings should never be out of the thoughts of those who guide others in the study of living things. 2. Common objects will be preferred to rare ones, partly because they are more easily procured in large quantities, and partly because the inquiries which they suggest are more likely to be resumed in after life. 3. A good method of nature study will stimulate the curiosity of the pupils. Too often the teacher is the only person present who is at all interested. The class are not likely to be interested unless their curiosity is now and then moved, nor is it easy to keep their interest alive unless we give them their full share of choice and responsibility. Never tell your pupils things which they can find out for themselves. Wherever you can, let them make their own observations and draw their own conclusions. Curiosity in the child may be the germ of love of knowledge in the man, and what we call science is, more than anything else, the habit of putting and answering questions in an orderly way. Something that really deserves the name of biological research may easily grow out of the nature study of the schoolroom. La plupart des découvertes consistent à dire « regardez ». 4. Various powers of mind and body will be exercised. Nature study should not only train the powers of observation and reflection, but find work for hand and eye as well. Special gifts, such as mechanical ingenuity or skill in drawing and modeling, should find due exercise. We ought to encourage our pupils to draw to scale, to plot experimental results as curves, and to make with their own hands as many as possible of the boxes, stands, and glass tubes which their experiments require. Photography and other methods of impartially recording natural fact are often of great service in the schoolroom and later on in the laboratory. 
Nature study should cooperate with other kinds of schoolwork, and I would here lay stress upon one particular discipline, which may well be closely associated with the observation of nature. I mean the study of the pupil's mother tongue. It is a national peculiarity of ours that we cannot set forth our meaning clearly and concisely without embarrassment. Perhaps this is in some measure due to the habit of repeating school lessons from books. At any rate, the constant repetition of the words of a book in all spoken classwork has its effect in producing men who are timid and awkward in expressing their own thoughts. I am not without experience of the deficiency in English schoolboys, which I here point out, but am comforted by finding that the deficiency is more one of education than of nature. The English schoolboy is not incurably dumb. After a short course of training, which encourages him to think, and to express what he thinks, he becomes in a measure vocal. His school has generally been unkind to him in this matter. I could wish that the schoolmaster would more often cultivate the power of expression in his boys, and nature study, among a score of other things, gives the opportunity. If only the schoolmaster, when he has a plant or an animal or a little scientific experiment in hand, would give his class a little drill in the useful art of description. Can he not make it clear that the description must not begin anywhere, and that there are certain essential points which every good description must include? With pupils who are altogether untrained, I have been accustomed to use a formula for biological description such as this. Kind of thing, situation, form, size, color, general structure, minute structure, function. The formula, like formulae of other kinds, is useful to the beginner, but must not be too rigorously imposed, nor continued too long. Even before the days of regular instruction are ended, the formula often needs to be mitigated, and at length replaced by a more elastic method. Teachers now and then ask me how they are to teach nature knowledge to a class of seventy, eighty, ninety, or even a hundred children. I am obliged to reply that, in my opinion, the thing cannot be done at all. You may keep order while you are instructing some few, but the lesson to such a crowd is at best an unsatisfactory makeshift. Not long ago I attempted to teach a class of sixty teachers in training. Though the circumstances were more favorable than one would find in school, we were compelled before long to divide the class. With so large a number, inattentive pupils escape notice, and attentive ones are not called upon often enough for the teacher to judge of their progress. These enormous classes are advocated in the name of economy, but I fear it is economy of the sort which pays half the price and gets a quarter of the value. I know of no way whatever in which fifty persons can be soundly instructed at the same time. What I have seen of the present generation of teachers in training shows that they are much better instructed in drawing than their predecessors. I believe that nearly all can draw as well as nature study requires. Further improvement is to be looked for in small points, such as the more frequent use of washes of color, and in the art of drawing to scale, useful for so many purposes. Drawings on the blackboard, copied by the class, are often extremely mischievous in nature study. Coloration by chalks is facile and seductive, but spoils the quality of the outline. Shading of all kinds is best left out as a rule. Faults which I find prevalent are the frequent use of India rubber and the inking in at home of drawings made in class. Both spring from a love of mechanical tidiness, which is apt to obstruct greater virtues. Trial lines need not be erased at all. The drawings of the great masters often show them without disguise. Erasure spoils the surface of the paper, besides encouraging a timid manner. 
a drawing made from the object should be treated with a certain respect and never tampered with when the object is no longer at hand. We want fresh helpers for the preparation of new nature studies. There must be a large number of teachers who could now and then write a good one. The difficulty, and a very serious difficulty it is, would be to pick out the really useful lessons from the rest. Such questions as follow might be some guide in the estimation of merit. Has the writer made out anything, great or small, which was not known before? Does he employ new methods of inquiry or new methods of teaching? Is the plan of the lesson natural, attractive, and likely to aid the memory? Is the language simple and expressive? Can the pupils do work for themselves upon the subject of the lesson? Does the lesson contain any good experiment? Is it illustrated by new and careful drawings? I am quite sure that there would be no difficulty in getting any lesson published which came out well from such an interrogation, and I believe that to write once in a way with all possible care a lesson which was to appear in print would be a valuable discipline for the more ambitious of our young teachers. I should like to see the preparation of new nature studies organized a little. Those who seek after educational reforms meet with frequent discouragements. The world does not love reformers of any kind, and one must in candor admit that they have their disagreeable side. But the reformers, among whom I should be proud to be reckoned, enjoy their little triumphs now and then. I can look back upon forty years of teaching, and the improvements which the English people have adopted in that time are great and lasting. From what I have lived to see, I draw the most cheering assurances as to the future of education in this country. End of chapter 1